gracious to us. Teach us now as we look at your word the joy of decreasing, the joy of laying aside uh, the premium place that we set on our own time, our own money, our own resources. Teach us the joy that comes with laying those aside and embracing a life that's shaped by the grace and the priorities of the gospel. Would you, uh, would you work by the power of your spirit? Your, your spirit is supernaturally powerful. It can work to change us even now in our seats. So we pray that you would do that. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So Acts chapter 17. Uh, what's that? It's cool. We're going into Star Wars or something. Nice. Okay, there we go. Acts chapter 20, verse 17. And just to bre- before we read this text, um, um, uh, before we read this, this passage, just a little bit of context. So we've been following Paul along as he's gone out on three missionary journeys. He's, got, he's left Palestine and, 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 uh, and Syria, and he's gone out to travel across the Roman world, across the Mediterranean world. And he's done this three times. And at Acts 18, he went out on his third one. But this third and final missionary journey has been unique. It's been different than all the rest. He spent the bulk of his time in one place, in Ephesus. He spent three years in Ephesus. This is all recorded in, in Acts chapter 19. His, his, so he was, he was able to form really deep, significant relationships with the people in Ephesus. But his time in Ephesus comes to an end at this in the second half of chapter 18, really chaotically, really disruptively. There's a riot that forms. So, uh, so he's in Ephesus. He, in Ephesus there, which is kind of like the, 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 the New York City, as Justin called it, the New York City of, a, of the province of Asia. Uh, but there's a riot that forms uh, because over the course of three years, uh, people have, have, have begun to see in Ephesus that the gospel is, is engaging our culture, engaging our society, and it's actually having a negative impact on the ex- existing structures and systems that we have in place here in Ephesus. And in particular, all of the... the, uh, the uh, the economy and the culture of Ephesus all revolved around the Temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And, and, and Ephesus depended primarily, uh, in a lot of ways, uh, financially on the income from the, the, the sacrifices and the tourism that this, that this temple would attract and would bring people in from all, all parts of the Roman Empire. And so one guy in particular who was a silversmith, he, he, was, a, he was a maker of, of, of idols, of, of idol statues, to, uh, to the goddess Artemis, he uh, realized that if people are going to start trusting in Jesus and not, they're going to stop buying my idols and stop buying my statues. So this is going to, I'm going to like run out of money here. The, the gospel is going to make me, make me poor here. So he, what he does is he, he stirs up a, a, a massive riot of the whole city. He gathers the whole city. It's chaotic. Uh, the whole city is in, a, is in an uproar. They bring all the Christians, they bring a lot of the Christians, the leaders of the church, and Paul himself, in to try to put them, put them on trial in, in the, in the, um, in the kind of Colosseum thing, uh, amphitheater thing there. Um, and then uh, Paul barely escapes with his life. A lot of the Christians are beaten there, uh, that, that Paul knew, are beaten. Paul barely escapes from, with his life. He travels to uh, Macedonia and, and, and Greece and Europe. 
Um, and so his time in Ephesus is cut violently and chaotically short. It would have been a tragic uh, thing for him, uh, for, to, for him to have happen. But so now after spending a few months in Macedonia and then Greece, Paul eventually decides, I need to go back home, back to Jerusalem. Uh, but he's kind of developing a track record. Every time he goes to a major city, people want to kill him. Like he's not making a lot of, a lot of friends. So, uh, so he knows, he has in his mind, things are not going to go well for me in Jerusalem. I need to go home. I need to see people there. But this is not going to go well. He thinks even, he might even die uh, once, once he gets to Jerusalem. So, uh, so he starts heading home, but he also deeply wants to see his friends that he had made in Ephesus. He wants to reconnect with them because they he thinks, as we'll see, this is the last time he'll ever see them. So, but he knows if he goes to Ephesus, he's probably going to get killed. They're probably going to hold another, another mock trial for him. And so, uh, so instead of going to Ephesus, he, goes, he, he stops at the port city of Miletus, which is about 20 miles south of, of Ephesus. And, and there, at that port city of Miletus, he sends a letter to the elders of the church in Ephesus. And he says, hey, come out and meet me. I want to see you guys, but you know I can't go, go, go into the city. And, so, and, so that, and that's what they do. They, they, come, they come back. So, uh, so Paul is headed toward Jerusalem. He calls his friends. And really, this, the whole the next couple chapters, you might as well have like the Jaws theme music playing in the background. Dun, dun. Like danger is looming. Uh, his, the end of his life uh, might be in, in sight. He thinks it's in sight, uh, uh, but he wants to connect with these people. So we're going to read, uh, read about this interaction between Paul and these Ephesian elders. And as we read, there's a lot that we could take out of this passage, but as we read, I want you guys to particularly focus, pay attention to the way Paul describes his relationships with these people that he formed in, in Ephesus. Pay attention to the way Paul describes his relationship with them. Okay, so let's pick up uh, in verse 17 of Acts chapter 20. Now from Miletus, Paul, he, Paul sent to Ephesus and summoned the, church of, uh, the elders of the church. When they came to him, he said to them, You know, from the first day I set foot in Asia, that's Asia like the, the westernmost part of modern-day Turkey, not like the whole continent, um, how I was with you the whole time, uh, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears, uh, and, and during the trials that came to me through the plots of the Jews. You know that I did not hesitate to proclaim anything to you that was profitable and to teach you publicly and from house to house. I testified to both Jews and Greeks about repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus. Uh, and now I'm on my way to Jerusalem, compelled by the Spirit, not knowing what I will encounter there, except that in every town the Holy Spirit warns me that chains and afflictions are waiting for me. But I consider my life of no value to myself. For my purpose is to finish my course in the ministry I re received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of God's grace. And now I know that none of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, because I did not avoid declaring to you the whole plan of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Men will rise up even from your own number and distort the truth to lure the disciples into following them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for three years I never stopped warning each one of you with tears." And now I commit to you, I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all who are sanctified. 
I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that I worked with my own hands to support myself and those who are with me. In every way, laboring like this and to remember uh, uh, the words of the... uh, In every way, I've shown you that it is necessary to help the weak by laboring like this and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus because he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. After, this, he, he, after he said this, he knelt down and prayed with all of them. There were many tears shed by everyone. They embraced Paul and kissed him, grieving most of all over his statement that they would never see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. All right. Isn't that a beautiful picture of relationships that are fueled and formed by the gospel. This is probably one of, the, one of the warmest, most intense, and emotionally raw sections in the entire book of Acts. And if there's one thing that so overwhelmingly stands out about Paul's relationship with these brothers in Christ, it's this. He cared for them tremendously, and in turn they cared for him as well. As we've gone through the, the book of Acts, we've been calling this series Witnesses of His Resurrection. But one of the important things that we need to take note of from Paul's example here is that bearing witness to the gospel of Jesus is not just about giving a a good speech or giving formal testimony or being able to communicate the content of the gospel effectively. Uh, Bearing witness to the resurrection takes place through rich relationships with others. And as we think about Uh, Paul's model for building relationships that gush out of the gospel, there are really two characteristics that define, I think, Paul's relationship with these elders, with uh, with these elders in Ephesus. And the first is this, um, deep affection. Uh, Their relationship is marked by by weeping for one another. They they physically embraced one another. They kissed one another. Right? You can tell they cared one another about one another because it stirred in them deep emotions that welled out of them. There was these were not stoic, uh, distant people. They they were not afraid of of their feelings. There was nothing that held them back from expressing love and warmth. But then secondly, I know just like. What, like, the, our world needs men who are like this. Like, men who can express emotion deeply and affection deeply. Uh, and I say that just because these are all men in this picture, but we need women like that too. But, uh, but okay, so deep affection. And then secondly, meaningful impact. This, their relationship was marked by meaningful impact. So it wasn't, their relationship wasn't just vapid emotionalism. Like, this wasn't middle school puppy love. Like, we all love each other. Th- there was... Um, uh, that Paul's relationship with these men of Ephesus was about intentionally helping them to grow in their relationship with Jesus. The relationship was, was, was marked and defined by these two elements, uh, by deep affection, meaningful impact, by, by warmth and purpose, by emotion and intentionality. And I think one of the, th- the reasons that this theme, this theme of, of, of deep and meaningful gospel friendship strikes me in this passage is because this, kind of, this is a kind of a lifestyle that is becoming increasingly foreign in our day. All right, we, we read a description like this and think, man, that's beautiful. I want that. But at the same time, if we're honest, this kind of relationship is incredibly elusive. We long to know others and to be known by others. Right? That's what we were made for. But instead of depth and meaning, instead of warmth and purpose, our lives are increasingly becoming marked by shallowness and superficiality, loneliness and anxiety. 
And the division, the frenzy, the anxiety of the last two years, it's only increased that trend, accelerated that, that soul-crushing reality. There are actually a couple studies uh, that have been taken in the last few months that, have, that bear this out. So one study by San Diego State University uh, compared the emotional health of Gen Z Christians, that's like those born in the late 90s to, to 2000s, uh, uh, to, so it compared their emotional health with those of previous generations, uh, millennials and Gen Xers. And um, what they found is that the rising generation is the loneliest generation ever. Uh, today's 20-year-olds go to less parties and spend less face-to-face -face time with friends than, in, in, than any other generation. Another Harvard study found that 36% of all Americans, and 30, including 61% of young adults and 51% of, of mothers with young children, feel serious loneliness. All right, so this is the trajectory of our lives and of the world that we live in. All right? And it's, this is not just true of young adults or young people, not just true of Gen Zers. They, they learn these behaviors from millennials, they learn the, who learn these behaviors from Gen Xers, who learn these behaviors and habits from the baby boomers, right? And, and if we're honest, our relationships in the church, they're not really much different. I mean, I'm a, I'm a pastor here. Like, in some senses, I get paid to know people. Like, that's my job. But I still find it a real struggle for me to build meaningful and affectionate friendships. It's been a, that's kind of a, been a, a constant theme of my life and a constant request of God. Uh, God, would you provide at least one significant, meaningful, deep relationship for me? I've prayed those prayers, and, and some of you guys can, uh, can relate to that. So what do we do? How does the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection help us to experience the richness of God's design for friendship rather than the poverty that our culture has sold us? Well, there's, there's three things, there's three practices of Paul that, that come out in this passage that we're going to walk through. Uh, walk through. All right, but just to warn you, each of these practices, they cut against the grain of our culture. They cut against the grain of our own souls and, uh, and, our, and of our own priorities, okay? So, um, so let's move through them now. So firstly, we see here, Paul spent a lot of time with others. Paul spent a lot of time with others. Look at the time commitment that Paul made to these guys. Verse 19 says, You know how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears. So he, he experienced everything with them, trials and troubles. He was, he was with them publicly, and he was with them house to house. He spent time in their homes with them. Um, and then he comes back to this idea in verse 31. He says, night and day for three years. I never stopped warning you. Night and day for three years. He was with these people. Uh, that kind of sounds like Jesus, who, who was with his disciples for three years. Experienced everything with them. Walked miles and miles and miles. Ate every meal with them. Spent the night in the same uh, home uh, with them. That's, uh, they, so these, these people, this, this church in Ephesus saw how Paul responded to suffering. They saw how he worked and his integrity, his work ethic, how he made business interactions as a leather worker. They saw how he responded to criticism. Uh, they, they, the point is that Paul knew that if he was going to form deep and meaningful friendships with the brothers and sisters in Ephesus, he was going to need to devote a lot of time and share a lot of experiences with them. Unfortunately, this practice is pretty rare. It's, 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 uh, uh, it runs counter to the way we often approach our lives and our relationships. Uh, first, firstly, like we schedule our lives with almost no margin. Many of us do. 
Uh, we, we barely have enough margin in our lives to share a meal with our own families, let alone invite others into our homes to eat with them or go to other, other folks' houses and eat with them. Uh, some, of, uh, some of us know the frenzy and the anxiety that comes with a packed calendar. Uh, uh, secondly, though, like we, it's just in our DNA to live compartmentalized lives that are totally separate and segmented out from uh, the rest of our, so our church life doesn't interact with our marriage, our, our, um, our work life doesn't interact with our, our community group, our, uh, our friendships don't, uh, don't know about the, the struggles that are deep with, within us. We live compartmentalized lives, and this fragmentation, this disintegrated life leads to a disintegrated soul and a disintegrated experience. But there's good news, I think, for, for families and for people who are busy and who are, dis- who are compartmentalized. Paul, Paul's life here is like a glaring neon sign that tells us the gospel is inviting you into something way more beautiful, way more profound, something so much better. It's not like Paul was lazy or had nothing else on his plate, right? He, but he intentionally built in margin and rhythms into his life. And it was this space for others that gave him profound joy and affection. Uh, so you might ask, okay, well, how much time do I need to spend with others? I mean, I, literally, I don't have literally night and day to spend three years with somebody. So how much time is this practically uh, going to take me uh, to experience this kind of joy in relationship? Well, I don't have a, like a number of hours a week or anything, but you need to spend enough time with people in the family of God so that you're sharing a wide variety of experiences with them. Not just good, not just like Bible studies, not just worship service, not just like you're sharing a wide variety of experiences with people, okay? Because that's, I think, Paul's example. That's a Jesus' ex- example. Um, uh, and Now, some of you might be thinking, man, like I would love to be able to spend a lot of time with others. I'd love to be able to form deep relationships but like, I literally cannot do that. I have, like, I have little kids or I have a care, I have work schedule. I, I barely got time to form a full sentence, let alone form a full relationship. And I know that's hard. Like, my, my wife and I, we're in the middle of that. We've got three little boys uh, ourselves. We can barely have time to like, talk to one another, let alone uh, other people. And I don't want to pretend to have all the magic answers. But let me encourage you with two things. Firstly, no one is ever gifted magically with margin in their life. Like, nope. Almost nobody just, sit, unless you're my middle school self, like you don't nor- just sit on the couch twiddling your thumbs with nothing to do. We all choose to fill our time uh, with something. We all have something. That we- so margin, space for others, comes when we slash and cut and create margin for others. So it takes sacrifice and it takes uh, analyzing our calendars and, and prioritizing that. So maybe that means you try to take advantage of when your kids go to nap and invite somebody over or uh, to your house, or you wake up at an ungodly hour before the family to connect with somebody, or you coordinate with your spouse to kind of alternate times uh, where you're watching kids and, and, and use that time, that free time, that me time, to not scroll on your phone, not, not look at a project, but connect with somebody. Maybe it's reach out and just have a 10-minute conversation, or maybe you go on a walk with somebody, right? Uh, so we, we, culti- we, we carve out and create margin, but then secondly, we cultivate margin by inviting people into our mess. Like, Paul didn't hide any part of his life from the, from the people of Ephesus. They saw him in all humility. When's the last time you've been humbled? In an, like, you've been, you've been sharing a part of your life with somebody, and it causes you to, like, I don't want to share this with him because it's humbling to me. When's the last time you had an experience like that? Um, that Paul didn't shy away from that. Uh, so maybe that means you, you step up and you try to 
host or start a community group in your home, even though that you know logistically how it's going to work out is you're, you're not going to have enough time to come home from work and clean up your house and have people over. Like, it's okay to pe for people to come over and your house be a mess. Like, that's, or, or you know, like, I can't have a conversation with somebody. I got kids running around or whatever. Like, cultivating, uh, uh, cultivating friendship takes place in the mess and the chaos of that. Um, of that. So cultivate mar margin by inviting others into your mess. Okay, so Paul spent a lot of time with others. Secondly, Paul spoke with intentionality. He spoke intentionally to others. Look at the way Paul describes himself in this, in this speech. In particular, Paul repeats the same word twice, and not every translation catches this. So, uh, so verse 20, he says, I did not hesitate to proclaim to you anything that was profitable. Okay, he did not hesitate. And then verse 27, he says, comes back to this, and it's kind of bookends that whole first half of, his, half of his speech. He says, I did not avoid or I did not shrink back or hesitate from declaring to you the whole plan of God. And in the original, as I said, that's the same exact word. He repeats it. And it's actually in the structure of, this, of the paragraph, that's the main verbs. That's the central idea that he is trying to communicate about what he did. He did not shrink back from speaking. He spoke intentionally. Um, He's trying to catch our attention with that. He knew the power of his words and didn't shy away from, from using his words to build those up, uh, build others up. He, he knew this principle that in order to, to enjoy deep and meaningful relationships, we must be intentional in the way that we speak to one another. And what did he say? He said, what did he speak to them? He said, whatever was profitable. That is not what was easy to say or not what they wanted to hear, but what was good for them to hear. And then secondly, the whole plan of God. Now, you're like, okay, how am I supposed to talk about the whole plan of God to somebody? That sounds weird. Uh, here's what it simply is, is helping the, those that you're around, helping people see themselves in light of the, pic, the whole story of God's grace. Helping people to see themselves in the, where they fit in in the story of God's grace. That's what we're about to, that's what we're to be about with our words. So, uh, now you might be thinking, okay, well, Paul was like an amazing church planter, pastor guy. I am not that. Like, Paul was like, I, I think of Bible man, which I, I don't know much about Bible man, but I, he's what I picture, like this, the guy that knows the whole Bible. But is that what we're supposed to be? Like, is that, is that what we're to be? Are we, uh, I'm like, I, I'm, we're, I'm just an ordinary Christian. There's no way I could speak like this. I, there's, uh, there, I'm, if I tried to encourage or teach someone the Bible, it would just be weird and awkward. Plus, I don't even know what I would say. Uh, that's for pastors to do. Can't we just talk about normal weather or football or fishing or whatever? Well, let me, let me encourage you. I'm not asking you to preach like Paul or to have two Bible verses always on the tip of your tongue ready to drop on someone. But what Paul's example does teach us is that we must reject the ways of speaking to one another that are so common around us. And there's really kind of two ditches that we could fall into. Uh, um, uh, that we can fall into with our words that are really poisonous to, to our relationships. And the first is passivity, the ditch of passivity. Uh, we, can, we, we oftentimes fail to say what needs to be said, either, either a word of comfort or a word of correction, simply because it would make us feel, too, feel uncomfortable or we're not sure how to say it. So we shrink back. The other ditch, though, is flippancy. So we can be so careless with our words. We can often say the first thing that comes to our mind uh, without thinking deeply about the impact of our words. And as we, and, and this we know, like, 
is, can be just as destructive. Every one of us in here has been negatively impacted by someone's flippant, careless words. And you've probably impacted negatively somebody with your flippant, careless words as well. The principle is this. That in order to build deep and meaningful relationships, we must help those in front of us to see where they fit into God's story of grace. So, how do we take one step forward this week? I'll just share... I guess two. It's really, I had in my eye, it's one practical thing, but it's really two things. Two things to share. Remember last week, um, Justin's encouragement from the story of Priscilla and Aquila, how they, they took, uh, took alongside uh, Apollos and sp- explained to him the way of Jesus more fully. Uh, what they were doing is they were simply loving the person right in front of them. They were speaking to the person right in front of them. So you don't have to go looking for, hunting for people to encourage. Like, they're right in front of you. You interact with them every day. You interact with them every week. Uh, so start with the people in front of you. Who in my, my spheres of influence do I need to encourage with the truth of the gospel? And then, and then here's what I simply do. When I know that I'm going to go meet with somebody, whether somebody around the church or I'm, you know, we're having a or community group over or somebody over to our house or maybe I'm just going to play disc golf with someone and go to a family event or something, this is what I, I pray, a very simple prayer. God, would you use something I say during my time with this person to help that person to trust, to know, or delight in you more? Yeah, that's, that's it. That's all I do. It's very easy. Anybody can pray that prayer. God, would you use something I say during this interaction? Maybe it's five minutes long, maybe it's an hour and a half long, something I say to help point this person to trust, to know, or to delight in you more. Uh, what we're saying is simply, like, I want my words to be of some gospel use for this person. I don't have any idea what that looks like or any idea how to do that. So would you help me, God, to do that? So how could you uh, use scripture to intentionally encourage someone this week? And then uh, just one last point on this. Fathers, like, it begins in our homes with our own kids. Like, there's nobody else that God has more, has placed you within closer proximity to and has given you the responsibility to point your kids to Jesus. So how could this week be brainstorming? Like, how could you use Scripture to personally and specifically encourage one of your kids this week? I was reading a quote, I read, I came across a quote from uh, Diedrich Bonhoeffer, who was a German pastor back in the, not, under the Nazi, Nazi regime. And this is what he says. He says, uh, he says this, The Christ in our own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of our brother. The Christ in our own heart is weaker than the Christ in the, in, in the word of our brother. And what he's saying is not that Christ is weak. What he's saying is that... Uh, it's really easy. Like, we might know the truth of Scripture, the truth of the Gospel, like, but those, it's so easy for those things to get drowned out by all, all the other thousands of voices that are in our head. But there is unique and tremendous power in receiving the truth of Scripture from someone else, from a brother, uh, and, uh, um, that is more powerful than us just telling ourselves the truth. We need others to speak it to us. Okay, so Paul spent a lot of time with others, Paul Paul spoke with, to others with intentionality. And then thirdly, Paul sacrificed for others. Oh, typo there. Paul sacrificed, past tense, for others. So uh, we see Paul spending a, a lot of time with others, speaking intentionally to them. But then in particular, Paul sacrifices financially for the church in, in Ephesus. He says this, 33, I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. 
you yourselves know that I work with my own hands to support myself and those who are with, uh, those who are with me. Did you, did you catch that? He was willing to work hard at two jobs just so that he would not be a burden on his church. And the money that he made apparently went to other people who weren't even, like, went to support other people, okay? This guy was a worker, a hard worker, sacrificially. And he could have collected money from the church. He could have been financially supported by the church. He, has a, he had a right to do that. He explains in other letters. And he even encouraged other leaders in other churches to, 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 to be financially supported by the church. But he chose not to. He sacrificed. He didn't just talk about his love but he lived it out. And here's the promise for us. Right? As we begin to sacrificially serve with our bank accounts, with our schedule, with our energy, with our resources, as we begin to sacrificially serve others, it's going to feel like we're losing our life, like we're losing part of us that is precious to us. But in fact, we'll be gaining it. Or as Paul quotes Jesus in, in, in the next verse, he says, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Now, that's a kind of a common Christian tagline. If you've never read this passage before and you came across that verse, you're probably like, oh, that sounds kind of familiar. We, see, we hear it all around Christmas time. Any parents ever like tried to slam this verse home to your, to your kids when you're like staring at the Christmas tree with like saucer eyes, right? It's better to give than receive, remember? But, but the real depth of gospel richness in this verse, as we see worked out in Paul's relationships, blows way beyond any holiday. It shows us that, that actually what drives deep and meaningful gospel friendships, like the ones that you and I were made for, is it's driven by a paradox. By a paradox. So that says the blessed life, the, the full, soul-satisfying, non-anxious life with real meaning, that, that can only come when we try to fill and satisfy those around us. And the more we try to satisfy, the more we try to bless ourselves, the more it will feel like we're living under a curse. The ability to sacrifice for others comes only by, the one, by looking to the one who was cursed in order that we might be blessed. The full, blessed, soul-satisfying life comes only when we look to the one who was cursed in order that we might be blessed. And really, the whole point, the whole of life, of Paul's life, the whole point of, li- of Paul's life and ministry is pointing us to this Jesus and, and to this gospel. Notice how many parallels. I was, as elders, we were talking about this passage earlier this week, and Paul Peterson brought this, brought this point up to me. He said, no, notice how many parallels we can find between Paul and Jesus in this section. And, and uh, in Luke chapter 9, uh, Luke tells us that Jesus set his face like flint toward Jerusalem, knowing that he was going to go die. And that's exactly what we see Paul here doing. He knows that a trial, that afflictions are waiting for him, and he set his face, face toward uh, Jerusalem. And then uh, Paul, uh, and then um, just like Jesus, Paul has spent three years uh, serving and teaching and, and sharing life with these men. And then now, like Jesus in the upper room on the night before he was betrayed, Paul has gathered these disciples and is reminding them of his love for them and urging them to stay alert. And then he quotes Jesus himself to explain why he did all this. Paul has linked his life to the very trajectory and the pattern of the king who died for him. Right, Jesus, we read in, in Philippians 2, he did, not receive a qual- he did not think equality with God as something to be grasped or to take, it, take an advantage of. And then in verse 24 of Acts 20, we see that Paul did not consider his own life something of value for himself. In other words, 
as Paul stepped down the road with Jesus towards self-sacrifice, self-denial, and giving to others, he found a new way of viewing himself. A paradoxical perspective that brought the joy, the fulfillment, and the life that we're all craving. So the question for us then is, will we trust Jesus enough to sacrifice for others so that we might live? Will we trust Jesus enough to give of our weekends, to give of our, of our time, to give of our bank accounts, to give of our, of our energy and an emotional, uh, emotional well-being to serve others? Or are we going to continue to be so caught up with preserving our own bank accounts, pursuing our own hobbies, advancing our own careers, that we rob ourselves the joy of friendships that are marked by deep, and deep affection and meaningful impact, and place ourselves under a curse, uh, as it were. Like, or we could experience the blessed full life that Jesus invites us to. So, this is what it takes to build the kind of relationships that you and I were made for, that Jesus died to invite you into. To spend a lot of time with other people, uh, those in the body of Christ, to speak intentionally to others, and to sacrifice for others. Uh, now, some of you are, are here and you think, man, I, I, I want that. I don't, I don't even know I'm, how to take the first step toward that. Uh, I, I, I crave relationships like this. I, I, want, I, I know I want to go deeper with other people, but right now my life is marked by loneliness and anxiety and, fr- and frustration. Man, let me just uh, make a promise to you. If you, as you take one step towards something that feels like you're giving up your life, Jesus is going to meet you. Jesus will provide. Some of others, though, are, uh, and, I, and, I, and I put this in, in myself in this category, others are like, I don't even know if I want that, right? I am perfectly content to pursue my own priorities, my own hobbies, my own, uh, my, my own kingdom, my own bank account. I, I like, I'm, I'm an Alaskan who doesn't need other people. I, I'm perfectly content the way I am the way I am. Let me just challenge you like, to take a bet on this kind of Jesus. To take a bet on Je- that, that as you sacrifice and lay aside all those priorities and, and the way that you have been living your life for the past several years and the, and, the, and the priorities that you've set for yourself, as you lay aside those, I promise you, Jesus promises you that your life will be so much better. That you will see the fruits of the gospel in ways that you have never experienced before. So what needs to change? What small step could, this week could you take toward believing Jesus' promise that life comes through death, that joy comes through deep affection and, and meaningful impact with others? Let me pray. Father, you're, uh, you're a good and gracious king, as we've, as we've sung. To teach us to come under that gracious reign, to, to deny... Uh, to, to deny ourselves of the so-called manufactured right to run our own lives and to be masters of our destinies. Teach us to find life and joy that's found in, in, in devoting our lives to radically ordinary, everyday kind of relationships like we see here. Teach us to, to, to share experiences with the body of Christ rather than uh, rather than compartmentalizing our lives, rather than, that, rather than uh, filling our lives with, with no margin for others. 
Teach us to speak intentionally to one another, to reject passivity that so defines us, to reject flippancy that so tears at us, and teach us to sacrifice for others, to serve humbly, to humble, and in, to humble ourselves for the sake of, of another. Give us the grace to take the next step this week. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.